Hallelujah. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen, he is risen indeed. indeed. Hallelujah. As I said earlier, you know, we're, we're coming off a place of Lent, and some of us, many of us here, as, as part of that practice, have given up something in order to say, Lord, I, I, want, I mean business with you. And it can be anything. It can be chocolate. It can be wine. It can be fasting from media. It can be maybe extra time of prayer. But today is the day that Lent is over. Today is the day where Jesus is raised from the day, dead. Today is the day in which you can return to those things which you have forsaken during this time. So I'm going to count to three. And whatever you've given up, you can just speak that out with a certain joy, knowing that you can have it again. And some of you may have already broken out the chocolates and things like that. But whatever it is, one, two, three. <laughs> okay, I heard a lot of dessert, which is great. Uh, Thankfully, after service tonight, we have a lot of people that have brought some wonderful things. So those of you who said dessert, you're already ahead of the game. But this is Resurrection Sunday. This is the Sunday that we celebrate what Jesus has done for us in Christians in this world. And there have been Easter celebrations going on for hours now. Some pretty elaborate, some with processions through towns and all kinds of things like that. Some a little more modest like ours. But nevertheless, because the Lord is here, and because we are here to praise him and to glorify him, it is just as powerful and just as wonderful to us. The church has been celebrating resurrection. This has been the day of days in the church calendar for two millennia. And so it might come as a bit of surprise that the first resurrection that the church experienced, the one that Cindy read about in her reading of the Gospel of John, was anything but starting off as a joyous occasion. It started off quite the contrary, steeped and wrapped in grief. The first people that went to Jesus' tomb did not expect to find him alive. They expected to be taken care of their beloved rabbi who had died three days earlier, crucified horribly. Crucifixion by nature is a horrible death. And Mary, our text tells us, goes outside the tomb crying. She's there on the first day of the week. She goes while it's still dark, went to the tomb, heart full of grief, heart broken. We're in chapter 20 for this reading, but chapter 19 has Mary standing at the crucifixion of the Lord, seeing him suffer in this agony, seeing him go to the cross for the sake of each one of us but not really understanding what all that was about. How is it that this Lord would, would go to such a horrible death? How is it this, this, this rabbi who taught so much about the coming kingdom and about, uh, you know, that he would go and place a prepare, a, prepare a place for his disciples, that he had a, a, there was a room with many, he had a mansion with many rooms and he was going to prepare a place with us. And now all of those things those expectations, those, those, that sense of healing, the sense of, uh, to see the real miracles, to see people challenged, all of that is now before her eyes being killed. And she would, if she was there the whole time, seeing Jesus hang on the cross for six hours, his, his life slowly ebbing away bit by bit, breath by breath, until he couldn't breathe any longer, until just before he gave up his spirit, he cried out, it is finished. What would you have thought if you'd been there? 
Mary is absolutely bereft, as are all the others that were around it, totally bewildered by what had happened, grief being their only experience, total, their world being absolutely shattered. And so she goes there, some say to prepare the body, some accounts, but our text just tells us on the first day of the week, while it's still dark, she goes. You know, when somebody dies, we, our minds accept what's going on, they, they know, but our hearts don't. That's why in so many traditions to go and visit the body of somebody you loved is so important. To be alongside, to just be there. And so this is Mary. This is the, the, the day of resurrection. Finds her in this place. Finds her at the tomb. And she goes, and she, as she goes to the tomb, she sees that the stone has been rolled away. It's been removed from the entrance. So she comes away, she comes out running, and she goes to Simon and the other disciple, who is John, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in, the strips of linen lying there, and did not go in. But Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around his head, the cloth that was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And the other disciple goes in. He saw and believed. Not quite sure what that really means, but they still did not understand from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Mary just sees that the tomb has been opened and no body. The two disciples, two of the key disciples, Peter and John, come and it says they believe, but they don't understand what the Scriptures said, and then they leave. But John is recording this in his Gospel because he wants us to know something very important. He wants us to know that the body of Jesus was not, that the resurrection that they'll shortly tell us about when we see and encounter the risen Jesus, that the body was Gone. These are, you know what the Gospels are in this case, in, around the crucifixion and around the resurrection? They are eyewitness accounts. Nobody's making a big theological statement, but instead they are saying, all we know is that we went to find a dead person and we found nobody. It wasn't until he showed himself that we found Jesus and we saw him. But that'll unfold. We're going to journey with Mary as she goes through this. But, but the Gospel writer John wants us to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the proof of that is the empty tomb. This is the seminal, this is the key event. This is what defines us being a Christian. If Jesus was not raised physically and bodily from the dead, then as St. Paul says, we're lost. We're fools for just believing this. But Christianity is defined by this event. It is why it is so key. Without Jesus being raised from the dead, then you can see the, the link, all the things that would follow. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then, we, then his atonement would not be true. Then we would still be in our sins. We would still be separated from God, our Heavenly Father. We would not be in a place of being reconciled to him. We would, not, we would have only the prospect of death in this life with no hope and no future for life eternal with Jesus Christ. So to be raised bodily from the dead is essential to understanding God's purpose for sending his son to us. 
and understanding why today we can sit here, we can stand and we can praise him. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. Now, it's no good for us to say, um, you know, or, you know, there's been various theories, and part of the reason the gospel writers are so precise on this is they know people are already going to make up stuff. They're going to say, well, they stole his body, and you already hear that in the gospel accounts. They're going to say, well, it was just his ghost, and that would be known in, in holy times. Like, yeah, an apparition appeared. But the physical body of Jesus is what they want to convey. And, resur- and they do that because resurrection was unknown to them. A, a person actually being raised from the dead. You know, gods in, pantheism, uh, in pagan theology, they were always becoming somebody else. That wasn't a problem. The Jews knew that they, they had a hope of a general resurrection later on. But somebody who Scripture tells us would be the first fruits of res- resurrection going before us, that was unknown. Today, we might find that like, no, we, we're familiar with resurrection. We, there's resurrection in all kinds of storylines and things that we have in our own culture. To think that somebody could come back from the dead, that's not a big deal. We had a, a, a pub night not too long ago that talked about transhumanism. This idea that somehow we can extend who we are as people beyond the normal boundaries of life. Somehow we can postpone death, if not get rid of it altogether. But Scripture teaches us that everyone will die and everyone will be before the Lord in all too little time. But we don't let that bother us. In our culture, resurrection is a dime a dozen. I found this article from a person commenting on how that that shows up in our movies. Here is the article. Why can't anyone stay dead in Star Wars? (laughs) He writes this. They say that the only people really dead in comic books are Spider-Man's Uncle Ben and Batman's parents. But when it comes to Star Wars, we're at a point when Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru are the only ones we can confidently say are gone for good. These days, the last Jedi's line, no one has ever really gone, is a little too ironic. We're just used to seeing people pop up and all the heroes. It's like, that's actually good box office mojo. But it's not good theology. Only Jesus was raised from the dead and raised on our behalf. So that's the first part of what, the, of what this gospel tells us. And it is why we are here today. Jesus was, his body was missing. But as we'll see, it's because he was raised. But as we journey with Mary, we see her coming, the, the two apostles are gone, and now she remains there, and she looks at the tomb, and she peers inside, and there's angels dressed in white. It's one of the reasons we wear these colors, not because we're angels, but for the purity, for the joy of, of resurrection, to signify that. And two angels in white seated at where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the feet. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she still did not realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? He's asking the same questions as the angels. He's teasing out, if you will, drawing her in to this reality of the revelation that's about to happen. And then he asks her, who are you looking for? Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking, and she text goes on, thinking he was the gardener, 
She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Mary has yet to see the risen Lord. She's only in this place where she can see the Jesus who has died. Only his body. All she wants to do is find the body. And the angels ask her, why are you crying? And then Jesus, presumably behind her, says, why are you crying? And she thinks he's the gardener. At least I got somebody I can talk to who can go tell me what happened to the body. But Mary is still looking for a dead Jesus. She has no expectation that he's been raised to life. And too many of us today are looking, not even looking for a dead Jesus. Just when we think of Jesus, we think that he has died. Maybe he was a myth. Maybe he didn't exist at all. Maybe just somebody that was made up. Or maybe he did exist, but he certainly wasn't raised from the dead. He was, you know, as C.S. Lewis tells us, a good moral teacher. He said many things that we can still grab onto and hang onto and think we're better because that, that kind of fits how we see the world too. But that's not what the resurrection allows us or permits us to think because it, it brings us to an encounter with the risen Lord. Some of us may have known Jesus or walked with him, but sometimes we lose our way and functionally, even though we would say theologically, no, Jesus was raised from the dead, we live as if he wasn't. We live as if he is still dead or not active or gone away or somehow missing. And the great tragedy of that and the thing that Jesus came to help us with is this. That without him, what life do we have? What, the joy in life, the promise of life, the, the sense of absolutely being loved by God, which is what we were made for. If, if, and Jesus is the direct agent of that, the proof of that and what he has done. Without us experiencing the resurrection and the living Christ, how do we experience that? We have to make things up on our own. We have to pursue our own interests. If there's no Lord, then we're, we're having to make up the things that are meaningful to us. Our career, what people think of us, uh, accumulation of wealth, reputation, some cause. But without the Lord, these become our guiding lights. These become, in a sense, idols. An idol is something that we think we need more than we need Christ. And if we think that he is gone or far away, never existed, or was somehow not raised from the dead, all the things that we're pursuing in this life can become idols. Tim Keller writes about idols and idolatry. The biblical concept of idolatry is an extremely sophisticated idea, integrating intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. There are personal idols, such as romantic love, or family, money, power, and achievement, access to certain social circles. Many look to these things for hope, meaning, and fulfillment, the kind that only God can provide. He talks about intellectual idols, something that in our proximity to key universities would be important to pay attention to, or ideologies. He writes, for example, that European intellectuals in the 19th and 20th centuries became largely convinced that Rousseau's view of the innate goodness of human nature was true and right, and therefore our social problems were the result of just poor education or socialization. But then Keller comments, World War II sh shattered that illusion. See, the problem with idols is they they hold out the promise of what only God can bring. But because God in Jesus isn't part of our world, then we're left with a, 
overhanging anxiety of trying to make it happen and knowing we are so powerless to do so. Idols will always inevitably disappoint us, sometimes suddenly. But even if the things that we run after that are not part of our life in Christ, we may get to the end of our life, but we still face a Lord, the risen Jesus, who will say, did I not love you? Could you not have experienced? I longed for you to know my love, to know my care, to know my, my salvation for you. I long for you to be with me here in these many rooms, one of these rooms in this amazing mansion. The hope and future. But that is available, if anybody's hearing this now, that's available to every one of us. That is the good news of the gospel. That is why Jesus came to this earth for us. That's why he gave his life as a sacrifice, to pay the price that each one of us would owe, a debt we could not pay. So that we could be, we unholy, we who were so caught up in our little things, so lost in so many ways, we could be in the presence of a holy God. That's amazing. But that's why Jesus came for us. And so, without Jesus, without, if we only think that Jesus was not raised from the dead, if we think that there's something, some other explanation we're in a more precarious situation than we, than we live, we, we realize. But here's the great news as our journey with Mary continues. She says to him, thinking he's the gardener, where'd you put him? I'll go get him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. He calls her name. He calls her name with amazing affection and empathy and love. Because he knows what she's been going through. He knows. He, you know, he knows. He knows. And it's when he calls her name that she recognizes him as Lord and Savior, as Jesus, as Rabbi, as teacher, the one that she followed, the one who was, is the Messiah. When he calls her name, and there's something about calling a person by their name that is so deeply personal, so amazingly connecting in its power. And Jesus has called, if we know him, he's called each of us by name at some point. And when we're far away or we're heading off the wrong direction or all excited about something and haven't really asked, bothered to stop and ask him, he calls us by name. And he comes alongside as he does with Mary. And if we would turn, as she does here in the text, and see him, we would have the rejoicing that she experiences, that suddenly the Savior that she thought was dead and she had already seen him crucified, raised to life in in a glorious way. There's been 2,000 years plus of Resurrection Sundays where we can thank God for bringing Jesus on our behalf as our Savior, where we can say, Lord, thank you very much for what you've done. I don't know where I'd be without you. But we never lose the need of hearing the Lord say our name, to see his glorified and risen presence in our life. 
And if we've never had that, then there's an opportunity after service today. Uh, Frank and Kathy will come up and they'll be here as part of the prayer team. They'd be happy to pray with you in that. Or for those of us who we know Jesus, we, we've had that resurrection experience. We've seen him come alongside of us. We've seen him in our, he's, we know he's seen us and he's, he's saved us, but we, we're really honest. We've just had times where we're off on our own and we're okay on our own. But Jesus isn't okay that we're on our own because he loves us too much to leave us on our own. And so those of us who are in there, we need to hear Jesus's, Jesus call our name as well. We're going to sing a little bit later today. Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. <laughs> Thank you. But we can say that too. Uh, give God thanks and praise just for this text that he gives us. Mary's real journey of, of looking for a Lord that she thought had been killed, but experiencing him as the risen and true Lord. And let me just close with a time of prayer that God would speak to each of us in that way today. Lord, thank you that you call each of us by name. You did so with Mary, and in that moment she discovered you again, so thrilled that you had to ask her to let you go, so amazed that you had been raised from the dead, so life-changing for her and for this world. Lord, thank you that 2,000 years later you give each of us here today that opportunity to hear your voice, to give rejoicing that you called our name to see your mercy and your love calling us even closer to you, still calling our name. Lord, give us the wisdom we need and the heart we need to draw closer to you as you show yourself to us. 